So as Pastor Juno said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 tonight. So you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Looking at a series on the cross of Jesus Christ, looking at it from four different angles. So far, we've seen Christ as our substitute. And then we've seen in these next three studies, um, last week, this week, and next week, the effects that, that happened through the cross. And so we look at it sinward and how it affected us in paying our ransom. Tonight, we're going to look at it Godward and how Jesus was our satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. And next week, we're going to look at how it affected manward and how Jesus said, as the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. And we'll see that Jesus reconciled all men to um, himself. So the cross of Jesus Christ, the world looks at it and they just see a man dying. But as Paul says, it's the power of God to salvation. Paul said, when I came to you, I sought nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified, the power of the cross. And so let's pray and ask that God would speak to us. And so, Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, thank you for that video, Lord, and how you're with, Lord, your people. Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, we know that you love us because we have the cross in which, Lord, your word says you demonstrate your love for us. And so, Lord, once again, as we come to the cross tonight, I pray that you would shout your love to us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would take these words and carry it to each one of our hearts, Lord, and, and meet us in whatever situation, circumstance that we're in, or that we would know your presence, or that we'd feel your peace, and that we would rejoice with, um, or with your love and your grace. And so, Lord, minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So election time is over. Most of the people are happy. That way you're not getting all that junk mail. But yes, election time is over. And some of you might be happy with the results and others maybe not so happy. But either way, I think we all agree that it's a blessing that as Americans, we have the right to vote concerning which laws we want to have right, for our government and who we want to represent us in our government and also as our judges. Now, while casting a vote for judges is still fresh in our mind, I want to read to you some characteristics and then ask, would you vote for this judge? Now, I want to make it clear, this is not a real person. And so I made, so I made a name for him. I call him Judge Jacob the Tender. And so, now this could actually be like the next TV judge, like the pillars of our society, like Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown. I mean, this could be it right here, my claim to fame. So here it is. Judge Jacob is a faithful servant of, to his community. I just hear like, you know, the Star Spangled Banner going off behind me, and I just see myself there like on a commercial. He's a faithful servant of, the, servant of his community. Judge Jacob is a faithful steward, here it is, of the law of his forefathers, and keeps it perfectly. Judge Jacob is a loving husband and father. Judge Jacob loves all people and goes out of his way so they could be blessed. Judge Jacob, solely because of his love, Let's all convicted criminals go free without a punishment for their crime. Now, would you vote for this judge? I would say no. I would say no. Now, it's good that this judge is loving and wants to help all people, but to disregard the law and let criminals go free is unjust and wrong. Now, I point these things out to illustrate part of the dilemma that God faced when mankind fell in the Garden of Eden. You see, since God is love, he wants all men to be saved but because God is just, he must judge sin. Now, God's solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we come to the cross tonight, we'll focus on Christ, God's satisfaction. As we look at this aspect of Christ's death, we'll focus on the three following points. 
Number one, the dilemma. Number two, God's solution. And number three, our application. So let's talk about this dilemma in depth. The dilemma really is based upon two factors, who God is and what man is. And so first, let's talk about who God is. Now, the Bible says that God is infinite. And because God is infinite, man cannot know God unless he revealed himself. And there is good news. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself to all men, generally through creation. But also, God has revealed himself to us specifically through his word. Now, some of the moral characteristics that were given of God in the Bible are God is said to be love, good, merciful, kind, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and gracious. God is also described by the titles of father, husband, friend, and savior. So based upon these characteristics and titles, it's obvious why Peter in 2 Peter 3.9 said that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's his natural response to who he is. He wants all men to be saved. Now, not only does the Bible say that God is love, but we're also told in the Bible that God is just, that God is righteous, that God is holy, and God is true. The friend of God, Abraham, said that God was the judge of all the earth, and he must do right. Now, this might come as a shock to you in talking about who God is, but there are actually things that God can't do. For example, the Bible says that God can't lie. He can't deny himself. He can't change. He can't act contrary to his nature or his word. So that really is, is a dilemma in talking about God. Now, Charles Ryrie says also this concerning God's attributes, or he, as he calls them, perfections. He says, the various perfections of God are not compon- uh, um, components, parts of God. Each describe his total being. Love, for example, is not part of God's nature. God in his total being is love. And although God may display one quality or another at a given time, no quality is independent or preeminent over any other. And when God displays wrath, he is still love. When he shows love, he does not abandon his holiness. And so God is love, but God's love does not cancel out his holiness. God is gracious, but his grace does not cancel out his justice. God must judge sin, and God also must show wrath to sin. So as I said, this causes a dilemma. One theologian put it like this. He says, God is a father, but he is no less a judge. Shall the judge give way to the father, or the father give way to the judge? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Shall he sink his love to the sinner in his hatred of the sin, or his hatred of the sin in his love to the sinner? God has sworn that he has no pleasure in the death of a sinner, yet he has also sworn that the soul that sins shall die. Which of the two oaths shall be kept? Shall the one give way to the other? Can both be kept without being violated? Can a contradiction apparently so direct be reconciled? Which is more unchangeable and irreversible, the vow of pity or the oath of justice? Law and love must be reconciled, else the great question as to a sinner's intercourse with the Holy One must remain unanswered. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. And so there's a dilemma there. It's first of all, deals with who God is. God can't change. He's absolutely loving, but he's also absolutely just. Now, as we read in this quote, man is a sinner. That's what man is. We're a sinner. In our first study, we talked about this in depth. We saw how man is both a sinner with inherited sin, but also we're a sinner with imputed sin. Now, we're all Americans here, yes, 
And we all know that everybody has their day in court. Everybody is innocent until proven guilty. And so because of this, I want to take us into the courtroom of the book of Romans and put us on stand. We're going to stand before our holy judge in God, and we're going to hear him read his law before us. We're going to discover the charges that are against us. We're going to discover the areas where we have broken God's law, and we're going to hear the sentence and punishment as a result of our sin. So the laws, as we enter this courtroom, here they are read. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's God's standard. God's standard is his own glory or his own unchangeable holy nature. We're told in Leviticus and also 1 Peter, God says, be holy for I am holy. Jesus and Matthew said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So the target that a person must hit is God's perfect standard. It's, it's, we have to live up to his perfect nature. If we don't live up to that perfect nature, and then we miss that mark, we miss that target, which is what the Bible calls sin. That's the definition of our sin, is missing the mark, falling short of that standard. God's standard is also found in his word, which is also an expression of his character. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word inspired means God breathed out. And so God breathed out his word to the writers as they wrote the 66 books of the Bible. Now notice Paul says the Bible reproves us, it corrects us. So in other words, the Bible teaches us what's sin and how to get right with God. Now one way that the Bible teaches us what's sin is in James chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all the law. So the laws, we all know, consisted of those writings from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy, to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The Jews called it 613 commandments. And James says, hey, guys, if you have broken one of those laws, you're guilty of them all. Now let's take a moment and compare ourselves to some of these laws. The, the, the Ten Commandments, which some people say they live by. The Ten Commandments. Here's some questions. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. <laughs> Have you ever stolen anything? Mm, yeah. Have you ever bore false witness, which means lied? Have you ever coveted anything, wanted something that's not yours? Now, maybe you might feel like you're in the courtroom with a, with a good lawyer like Johnny Cochran who, you know, can find some loophole to get you off scot-free. Well, this would be a good time for me to point out that there's some stipulations that Jesus gave us in the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, well, yeah, you say you should not murder, but Jesus says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder already. Jesus says, you've heard that said, do not commit adultery, but if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery already. And so not to mention that Paul says in Romans 3.23, and also Jesus at the end of Matthew 5, that we must be as perfect as God. And so that's how we stand up to these laws. Now, what are the charges that are given against us? What are the charges placed against us? Well, Paul gives us those charges in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Let's just read them. As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How does the defendant respond to these charges? Guilty. Paul was right in Romans 3.23 when he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Now, the reason that we're a sinner is not because we sin. We sin because we're a sinner. You see, we're born with the sin nature. And because of that sin nature, which we get, you know, get passed on from Adam, we all have sin, and therefore we're all guilty of breaking the law. Now, what's our punishment and our sentence that we're given by the judge for this sin? We're given that also in the Bible. Now, man's punishment for, for breaking the law is, is death. You see, in human terms, when a person violates man's law, the law demands that the violated law be satisfied. It might be satisfied through a fine, jail time, or for some crimes, death. And the Bible clearly teaches that our find, our punishment, is death. This is seen before the law in the garden. God said, if you eat of that fruit, guys, you're going to die. This is seen under the law when we're told in Ezekiel, the soul that sins shall die. And also we're told this in the New Testament, where Paul says the wages of sin is death. Now at times when Israel was a theocracy, theocracy, God ordered capital punishment for some sins. And also in the New Testament, we're given what's called the sin of death, which, for example, Ananias and Sapphira were taken home early. They died because of a specific sin. But when Paul in Romans 6.23 refers to the wages of sin, he's referring to spiritual death, which is spiritual separation from God. He's referring to eternal death, which is dying apart from Jesus Christ and be eternally separated from God in hell. Not only does sin separate, but sin also deserves God's wrath. Listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, or ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul in Ephesians 2.3 calls unbelievers children of wrath. And so an unbeliever is a, ch- is a child of wrath because they have rejected Jesus, and they're going to receive the punishment for their sin. Now, in our world, there are certain things that deserve the wrath of man. Think about ISIS in the Middle East. Think about the Nuremberg trials for the Nazis. These crimes were an offense to mankind, and they hurt others. Therefore, all mankind agreed that they deserved just punishment. Even though we, they, you know, they might have loved those people, yet because of their sin, they deserved just punishment. In a similar way, all sin is against God. All sin is an offense to his holy nature, therefore it must be punished. Sin destroys those whom God loves, therefore he hates the sin in, 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 and he shows righteous anger against him. Now the Bible is clear that God will bring wrath against sin. He'll bring it in the great tribulation, which is called God's wrath on this earth. We see that in Revelation. They said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of God. Now all unbelievers will stand in front of the great white throne judgment. And they'll be judged, and their names will not be found in the book of life, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire, which is, is a result of God's wrath against sin. Now, in talking about God's wrath, it's pretty heavy, I know, but it's important to keep two, two things in mind, and, and two things in mind, and Paul points them out in Romans 1.18. First, he says that God hates sin, which is ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's what he judges. God hates the sin. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And second, God's wrath is against those who suppress the truth willfully. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
And so in other words, in order for a person to receive God's wrath, they have to continually throughout their life reject God's revelation. They have to continually step across the body of Jesus Christ. And as C.S. Lewis says, there's going to be two types of people in heaven. Those who have bowed the knee and said, God, your will be done. And those whom God looks at and says, your will be done. A man chooses to go to hell because they must reject Jesus Christ in order to go there. And if a person chooses to reject Jesus and live in sin, well, then they receive the just punishment of that, which is God's wrath. Now, we see God's solution to the dilemma, which is our second point. Paul gives us that in beginning in verse 19 of Romans 3. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the law was never given to make a person righteous before God. The law was never given to save a person. Rather, the law showed a person that they were a sinner and that they were in need of a Savior. Notice verse 21. It says that the law and the prophets were a witness to Jesus Christ. They pointed to him. They took the stand and pointed to Jesus, the solution. It pointed to Jesus in the prophetic pictures of the sacrifice in the tabernacle. The prophets, such as Isaiah, as we learned about on Sunday, pointed to Jesus who would take the sins of the world. He would receive our punishment for us. God would lay our sin upon him. Now, because the law can never make a person righteous before God, God needed a way to give his righteousness to man. And Paul said God did just that. You see, he through his grace sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And therefore, because of that, when a person puts their faith in Jesus, God then declares them righteous. And also, they are born again. They receive God's righteousness. Now, you say, wait a second. What about the penalty of man breaking God's law? How could a holy God who's just declare a sinful man righteous on the basis of faith alone and also remain just? Is God like Judge Jacob the Tender, who just allows criminals to go free without punishing the crime? Well, not at all. Paul gives us the solution even more now in verses 25 and 26. Listen to what Paul says. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the key word there is a word that I can't ever hardly pronounce, propitiation. That's the key word in this verse. Now, the concept of Jesus being man's propitiation is seen throughout the New Testament. It's seen in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. It's seen in 1 John 4.10. It's also seen in Hebrews 2.17. If we put these four passages together, we could say that God sent his son Jesus, who was God the Son, as a man, and he died on the cross, shed his blood to be our propitiation. Now, in talking about this word, I want to talk about a couple things quickly. The definition of it, an illustration of it, the explanation of it, and the result of it. And so the, the definition of propitiation, we ask, well, what is it? What does that even mean? 
Propitiation means that Jesus' death on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. His death on the cross was, a, was an acceptable sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. And we see this illustrated throughout the Bible. You see, God needed something to appease his wrath. And we see that in the Old Testament. Verse 25 says that God passed over man's sins on the basis of Jesus Christ. And so God, foreknowing that Jesus would die on the cross for man's sins, in his grace chose to pass over the believer's sins in the Old Testament. Well, how did he pass over these sins? Well, well, we, we talked about it last week. It was through the shed blood of an animal to cover their sin. And so in the Old Testament, as these people would sacrifice a substitute, an animal in their place, God in his grace, on the basis of Jesus' future work, would choose to pass over their sins. He wouldn't pour out his wrath on their sin. Now, this is specifically seen on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. On that day, the high priest would carry the blood of a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that would make atonement, that would make propitiation for the sins of the Old Testament believers. Now, I'm told that when this word mercy seat is translated into Greek, this word is propitiation. So in other words, because man broke God's law, something must pay the penalty of that broken law. And God in his grace could cover man's sin until the time that he chose to send Jesus, but that could never fully satisfy God's wrath against sin. The broken law must be dealt with. Man must die for man's sin. And so here's where Jesus comes in. Here's the explanation. Jesus was man's propitiation because he shed his blood, his righteous blood on the cross for man's sin. God's wrath against his broken law was poured out upon Jesus. You see, last week we talked about Jesus paying our debt, our ransom. But today we see that Jesus paid our fine, which we owed our holy God. Paul in Galatians 3.13 said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus took that wrath of God. God said, I, I'm just, I must judge sin. And so Jesus came and, and received that wrath for our, broken, or for our sin, for breaking God's law. But not only did Jesus satisfy God's wrath by his death, he also satisfied God's righteousness through his death. You see, Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was the only person who could ever keep the law perfectly because he was God. And Jesus said that he would do so until he fulfilled it. And the Bible is clear that when Jesus was on the cross, he fulfilled the law, all God's righteous requirements. So here's the result. It's great. It's in verse 26. Two things. Based on the fact that Jesus satisfied God's wrath and his righteousness, God can remain just and also forgive sinful man's or sinful man of their sin. And second, when we put our faith in Jesus and the fact that he died in the on the cross in our place, God is then free to forgive us and justify us and also to give us his righteousness. So it's amazing. Because we're in Jesus, because we put our faith in Jesus, God says, I don't need to pour out my wrath upon you. And oh yeah, and also I can declare you righteous because when you believe in Jesus, you receive my righteousness through faith. You know, that's what Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God. God put our sins upon him and when we put our faith in him, God then gives us Christ's righteousness. Now that's amazing to think about it. 
That's amazing to think about it. But it's even more important that we apply it, that we make it real to ourselves and our walk with the Lord. One verse I read on our first study, but I want to read it again because it fits. 1 John 4.10. It says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the love of God, once again, is demonstrated through the fact that he sent Jesus to this earth to satisfy his wrath and his righteousness. Now, those of you that are parents know that there is sacrifice that we must make in raising children. There are times when you must go out of your way in order to love your children. You might have to wake up early, right? You have to, might have to miss this thing. I mean, those are all small things, you know, really. But I mean, but there are sacrifices. There are real sacrifices that we have to make as parents in order to love our children. Think about the love of our Father. Think about the love of God and the fact that he went out of his way to demonstrate his love for us. And he did it by solving this dilemma. You see, there we were, guilty before a holy God who loved us. But what did he do? The same God who condemned us was also the same God who stepped down from his throne by sending the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to take our place and to take our punishment. You see, no animal sacrifice, no good works, nothing could ever satisfy God's wrath or God's righteousness, only his only begotten son. And so because of that, God was willing to send his son for us to die on the cross in our place for us that we can be free, that we can have a relationship with him. That's, that's a lot of love right there. I think you'd agree. Now, based upon this great love, we need to think biblically about God. We need to think biblically about our Father and how he thinks about us. You see, if God poured out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross, isn't it foolish to think that God would then pour out his wrath upon believers in the tribulation? People say, oh, no, the, tribulation, the, the church is going to go through it. They're going to receive God's wrath. And we think, well, wait a second. Jesus already received God's wrath on the cross. And we're told in Romans and also in, in, uh, in Thessalonians that God will not pour out his wrath upon us. He will spare us from his wrath because Jesus has already received it. And since we're in Christ, we're freed from God's wrath. Also, we shouldn't think that God is always waiting to condemn us. Paul says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus those who don't walk after the flesh. Think about it. If God was willing to pour out his wrath and judge you know, our sin upon his son, and then why would he condemn us? Because we're in Christ, God loves us, and, and, and he demonstrates it over and over and over through his word. Finally, God will never leave us or forsake us. If God has loved us this much, then he'll continue to walk with us and love us. And that's the point that Paul makes in one last scripture. I'll read it to you in Romans 831 through 39. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril of sword? As it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In closing, our response is to rest and receive. To simply rest and receive the love that God has for us. To just enjoy God and walk with him and not live condemned. God loves us. He poured out his wrath upon his son so we can have a relationship with him and walk with him. But there's something else. Maybe it's not you're here and you're not a believer. Maybe you've been coming for a while or maybe it's your first time and you never received Jesus Christ as your savior. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. One day we're gonna stand in front of a holy God and unless you have Christ's righteousness, you won't be able to stand. Put your faith in Jesus and be made righteous once and for all and then walk with our loving Father.